Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Friday, August 20th edition of the Basement Academy. This has been a full week. If you have watched each of these, <laughs> give yourself a gold star. Uh, they've gone a little longer than normal, and uh, they've been fairly full of ideas, concepts. Uh, I hope I have been faithful um, to present honestly uh, the uh, framework and some of the ideas contained here within critical race theory. Uh, let's dive into our morning psalm uh, and then have a, kind of a final reflection for this week. Uh, we'll continue uh, some thoughts next week, uh, but let's dive in. And it's Psalm 140. Again, important language. Praying each of the psalms is so important as we pray five psalms a day. We go through the entire Psalter in the course of the month. And as we do this month after month, these words begin to dwell in us and we in them. And there's important language in this psalm about justice and God's care uh, for uh, the poor and needy. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Protect me from men of violence who devise evil plans in their hearts and stir up war every day. They make their tongues as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from men of violence who plan to trip my feet. Proud men have hidden a snare for me. They have spread out the cords of their net and have set traps for me along my path. Selah. O Lord, I say to you, you are my God. Hear, O Lord, my cry for mercy. O Sovereign Lord, my strong deliverer, who shields my head in the day of battle, do not grant the wicked their desires, O Lord. Do not let their plans succeed, or they will become proud. Selah. Let the heads of those who surround me be covered with the trouble their lips have caused. Let burning coals fall upon them. May they be thrown into the fire, into miry pits, never to rise. Let slanderers not be established in the land. May disaster hunt down men of violence. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. Surely the righteous will praise your name and the upright will live before you. Amen. A psalm where, this it says it's a psalm of David, where he's in a pickle. We don't know the details. The, the historical circumstance is not revealed. But some attack by others towards David and his interests. There's language that is spoken. Uh, tongues as sharp as a serpent's. Interesting, the serpent uh, in the garden had a sharp, uh, deceitful tongue. Uh, the hands of the wicked, men of violence. So there's physical acts of aggression in addition to these verbal acts of aggression. And then the appeal for mercy. Lord, hear my cry for mercy. Be my strong deliverer. And then it's this reminder, the Lord secures justice for the poor. He upholds the cause of the needy. And I think David sees himself in that position of poverty of the one you know, being attacked. It might have been the time when he was 
um, his son Absalom had essentially um, risen up against him and, and gathered people uh, against David and kind of drove him off. We don't know, but we do know that God cares. And we do know that praying our way through our lives is one of the essential, how do I say it, needs uh, for Christians, for God's people through the centuries. We pray our anxiety. We pray our despair. We pray our anger and our frustration. We pray our need. That there may be additional things we do, but we pray. We lift it to God with the confidence that God hears, that God is at work. So as we turn to another reflection, this would be the 10th of our pastoral reflections on critical race theory. I'm going to ask you to go back and watch the last five-ish minutes or so, kind of the pastoral reflection from yesterday. Making this point as I was trying that frameworks that are offered to us, um, ideas and concepts that are offered to us where we have no opportunity to question, where we have no opportunity to scrutinize, where it is presented in whole, without scrutiny, without question, without opportunity to examine, that itself should be evidence alone that we should be cautious of such a framework. Now, if we can examine, if we can question, if we can scrutinize, if we can test and, and, and kind of, you know, bounce it on the ground and kick the tires and slam the doors, so to speak, then, then we, that's what enables us to kind of own that knowledge for ourselves. And so this is what the academy historically has been about, a place of intellectual inquiry where we hold up various ideas and competing ideas and we test them and we wrestle with them and we explore them. And so uh, freedom of academic expression uh, is, is essential to the production of knowledge and the testing of knowledge. And this is how we advance as a society, how we have advanced as a society. Now when something comes to us, and it is presented without the opportunity to question or scrutinize or verify, when the mere asking of the question leads to, oh, well, there's your problem. So, so go back and kind of watch yesterday and, and, and kind of at the end there. I believe that, I, I found myself overnight thinking that's probably more important than I even thought it was. I think it's important, but it may be way more important. Um, I get that if people want to believe something without questioning, just kind of mindless, and, and people accuse Christians of that. So I, I acknowledge that Christians are accused of a blind faith, of accepting things without evidence. We can't prove the resurrection. We can't prove that there's a God, etc. And so I'm, I'm well acquainted with the uh, with the arguments. But the Christian faith 
is examined. It has been well examined over time. Now, an individual may not have examined that, but but this faith has been well tested. <laughs> and, and I'm open to having conversation with anyone who'd love to, to talk about these things. Again, this is an open book. We are open for questions. Um, for personal belief, absolutely. If somebody wants to just, like, like QAnon, all that QAnon stuff that's so crazy. If people want to go down the rabbit hole of QAnon from a personal belief standpoint, hey, it's a free country, right? We're going to, you can do that. But public policy? Are you kidding me? We are going to base public policy, be it in our schools, be it in our, our workspaces, in, in kind of um, the, the marketplace, etc. We are going to base public policy on a, a framework, a model that does not permit questions, does not permit scrutiny, that when evidence is presented to the contrary, that evidence is presented or responded to as evidence of certain fragility or something. This is, so I became convinced yesterday <laughs> of the concern, again, Explore CRT. Let's 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 examine it. And I've got a few more ideas that to, to, to lift up that I, I want to present fairly. I think there is merit in some of these ideas. But if the whole framework is 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 um, taught or is imposed and it is brought into the, the realm of public policy that and it does not permit questions. Friends, we may be on the verge of something very serious as a society in a in a in a negative way. So that that was really kind of the the post game report on yesterday. I just felt I needed to get that out there. Um, some a, a few other ideas or concepts to to put to put out. Um, the the first uh, that that that. that you know, that, that critical race theory offers. The first is intersectionality. It's an important concept. It, it, it is a leading concept uh, in, in many areas where, where folks talk about this. They lead with intersectionality. The idea is simply, as I understand it, again, trying to be fair, that so, so the basic framework of oppressor and oppressed, the identity groups, right? White, heterosexual, male, etc. And so it kind of ties into this matrix of oppression that is way written too small here on the board, but I'll try to talk through that. But intersectionality is the notion that one is not simply oppressor or oppressed, well, or, or one is not simply oppressed in a general way, but there are particular expressions of oppression and there are layers, overlapping layers or intersections of oppression. So... Um, a, a white person oppresses a person of color or a black person. So there is one layer of oppression. A heterosexual person oppresses a homosexual person or an LGBTQ, okay? So a, a gender minority, if we could say it there. Uh, and so there's another layer of oppression. A third uh, might have to do with... Um, race, I'm sorry, a class, so rich versus poor. 
And so the idea is that with intersectionality, oppression is kind of additive or almost uh, it, it multiplies or amplifies. And so a black, gay, female who is disabled and is, uh, you know, works for minimum wage or is unemployed. So there are five different areas. So the white, black, the male, uh, female. Um, uh, what else did I have? The, 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 uh, the, the uh, gay uh, versus straight the disabled versus able-bodied. So ableism is this privileging of able-bodied. And so uh, disabled people are oppressed. It is, it is understood that they're oppressed and then rich to poor. So that person would have their intersectional oppression is greater than someone who is a black straight female who lives in a middle-class neighborhood and is able-bodied. So that person has just a couple intersecting points of oppression, whereas the other person had, I think I counted up five, right? And so the idea is then you couple that with this notion of lived experience. And so the, the lived experience of oppression by the person with five kind of intersectional points of oppression their voice has more authority than the person with only three intersectional points, okay? And their voice has infinite authority over a straight, white, male, able-bodied male like myself living in a middle, upper-middle-class neighborhood. And so, and so intersectionality has a way of kind of almost measuring or quantifying oppression. So not just stating that oppression exists, but intersectionality says here you've got this oppressive dynamic, but then you've got multiple or amplified expressions of oppression. So intersectionality is something to pay attention to because folks, you know, they, they get it from a couple different sides and I, I acknowledge that. So I, I don't, I don't necessarily quarrel with, with the concept. Um, microaggression, <clears throat> some of you may have heard that. Microaggressions are <clears throat> typically understood to be verbal, um, verbal acts, but they're small. That's micro. So it's not, you know, um, it's not some um, big systemic work of oppression, which again, the, the framework says that this work is mostly um, <clears throat> a systemic reality. Oppression is mostly systemic, but allowing then for individual uh, oppression th th is the concept of microaggression, a micro, small aggression act of, of power or oppression towards a marginalized um, individual. And so it, it's just simply that, but, but telling a joke. So um, uh, there's, uh, this just came uh, in the news, maybe Monday or Tuesday of this week, uh, one of the baseball announcers, I think it's for the Detroit Tigers, Jack Morris, <clears throat> when uh, a very good player for the other team was coming up to bat, Shohei Otani, who is this phenomenal baseball talent. He's, he's the new Babe Ruth, who both pitches and hits. So he's leading in home runs and he is pitching and he's just a great player. And um, <clears throat> the announcer 
the the colleague to the announcer said, "Here comes Otani. How should they, how should they pitch to him, or how should they, you know, handle him here in this, you know, situation in the game?" And Jack Morris spoke in uh, an accent that it should be very carefully, and it was some accent. I, I, I it was you know Shohei Otani, I believe is is Japanese, and so. Uh, he spoke in some kind of Asian accent. He's gone. The announcer is gone. That is a microaggression. It was a small act uh, deemed to be insulting, though Though he was really actually lifting up. You should be very careful with this guy. He is so good. That's how they should pitch to him, very carefully. But he said it with an accent. And in this framework, that is a microaggression. And, and so Jack Morris is probably going to lose his job because of that. Shohei Otani has responded, I was not offended in the least. So the individual towards whom it was directed, it was actually a positive thing he was saying, but he said it in an Asian accent. That would be an example in this framework of a microaggression and which there should be a consequence. And so Jack Morris probably going to lose his job. Um, internalized bias or internalized oppression. I think I've mentioned this already. It is the idea that those who are in those oppressed uh, communities, that those uh, uh, an oppressed community of identity, be it black, be it um, female, uh, you know, wh- whatever, um, who doesn't. So, so um, it would be Shohei Otani, not feeling offended, the concept would say he has internalized oppression. He's so used to being oppressed, he doesn't even recognize that he was oppressed in that inappropriate statement by the announcer. That's So again, that's what this framework teaches. Internalized bias, internalized oppression is when the the systemic realities of straight white males, etc., oppressing everybody else, when that's just assumed, when deference is given to a man in a workplace or a white person in some setting by a female or by, uh, you know, a, a, a racial minority of some sort. And, and if somebody is treated with respect or deference and their voice is, is listened to, uh, or their suggestion is followed, it, it, it at times is suggested that this is an expression of internalized bias or internalized oppression on the part of the um, marginalized community. So um, Jack Morris commits the microaggression. Shohei Otani says, I wasn't insulted at all. Well, it's because Shohei Otani has internalized his oppression, that he's just he's accommodated himself to it and he should not is, is what the, the, the framework teaches that he should not, um, he should be offended is kind of the idea. Okay. Um, I was just going to read, I, I, I was just, to, just so I'm let you know, I'm not making this up. <clears throat> so this is a definition, a little wiki, Wikipedia definition of microaggression. Microaggression is a term used for commonplace daily verbal behavioral or environmental slights, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative attitudes towards stigmatized or culturally marginalized groups. Okay, so I think I've given a faithful presentation of that. Okay, 
And then this is internalized bias uh, or internalized oppression, same thing. It occurs when one group perceives an inequality of value relative to another group and desires to be like the more highly valued group. Members of marginalized groups may have an oppressive view of their own group or affirm negative self-stereotypes. So that's the group themselves may see themselves as deserving of some kind of uh, oppression. So, so just I'm going to come back to those in a second. Uh, the matrix of oppression, I've talked about this enough, but it, it's basically a chart. You've got the various identities, race, gender, class, etc. Those who are privileged, okay, uh, the white, the male, heterosexual, the rich, etc. So you've got... Um, the, 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 the white race is, is uh, privileged. The BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, would be marginalized. In the gender universe, males uh, are privileged. Females are marginalized. Heterosexual is privileged. LGBTQ uh, is uh, marginalized. The rich, marginalized. The poor, etc. It's a, I think it's a pretty simple concept, so I won't, won't go into that uh, anymore. <clears throat> but the idea is these are some of the tools that are being taught to the children. These are the tools that are being taught in um, corporate workspaces, particularly around microaggression, internalized bias, and kind of identifying your privilege, kind of where you are. And so for the, so, and then where intersectionality and the matrix kind of matrix of oppression kind of work together. So you, you look at the matrix and you identify how marginalized you are, not just I am marginalized, I'm marginalized along three or four axes or in, in three or four areas, okay? So these are some very important concepts that are probably less at the academic level. They've been developed there. These are the ones that are mainstreaming and that have been popularized, okay? So <clears throat> let, let, let me just offer a couple uh, concluding thoughts, some pastoral reflection on kind of some of this right here, and then I'll try to tee us up for next week. Critical race theory <clears throat> is a fairly robust framework. There's an academic expression of it that we've talked about, the Frankfurt School, Harvard Law, etc. So it's, it's, it's alive and well in the academy. We're interacting more with the popular or cultural expression, the mainstreamed expression that is, you know, identifying privilege, talking about microaggressions, identities of oppression, etc. Okay, um, I, I don't have a problem with people developing frameworks to think about society <clears throat> and uh, to try to think through, you know, the 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 challenges in society. So, so I actually applaud, at one level, critical race theory as a noble effort at trying to understand and solve society's problems. So I, I commend that. <clears throat> I am concerned when frameworks are imposed without democratic process or scientific scrutiny. That's my opening thought there. <clears throat> so I am concerned with the manner in which this has come out of the academy, has mainstreamed, and now without democratic process or, or scientific scrutiny. <clears throat> um, critical race theory is simply responding to a perceived social condition in the world of injustice along several um, lines. Christians get care about these things too. <laughs> 
The Lord secures justice for the poor. He upholds the cause of the needy. We care about these things too. So, so we find some common cause in, in, a, in, a, in a large sense. <clears throat> Critical race theory has proposed a framework and a set of solutions. Christians do this too. Okay, Christians have a framework, an explanatory model. We call it sin, the human condition, redemption, etc. And we say we propose a solution as well. Faith in Jesus Christ and the reconciling power of the cross. I believe we should see critical race theory and Christianity not though. So I, I, in saying that there are these parallel concerns, I, I don't want to see these as parallel uh, allies. These are competing world views. Okay. This is my pastoral conviction. These are competing world views views. The same way Islam and Christianity is a competing worldview. The same way Buddhism and Christianity are competing worldviews. The same way Marxism and Christianity are competing worldviews. There may be overlapping areas of concern because we all have the same data. We're all looking at the world, looking at society, looking at housing and economics and governance and education. We're all looking at the same world we propose different frameworks and solutions. And so, so we need to, so I see these as competing, not as compatible. <clears throat> um, interesting observation from discussion group uh, on Wednesday. There's really two thoughts that have been bubbling up in, in the discussion. One is how do we respond, how do we understand and respond to critical race theory itself as a framework? And the other is how do we understand and respond to suffering in the world? Okay, those are two different things. And so next week's thoughts are going to try to unpack a, a little bit of both of those. <clears throat> um, I am concerned that Christians unwittingly toss the baby out with the bathwater in evaluating critical race theory and perhaps finding it wanting, uh, again, in my conviction, <clears throat> and distancing ourselves from some of those ideas we ought not distance ourselves from the concern that critical race theory is trying to address. That is concern for society, concern for injustice and suffering. So it would be easy, oh, critical race theory, all that racial stuff is out the door. We, everything's just fine and let's go about our business. Everything's not just fine, okay? Everything's not just fine. And so these are complex issues and we wrestle with them, going to, again, try to do some deeper dive on what is the Christian response, both at the local level and is there any systemic response that we as Christians or the church uh, should make. <clears throat> um, just a couple thoughts uh, to close out on this intersectionality, microaggression, etc. I, I read those, <laughs> I read those definitions it occurs, so internalized bias, it occurs when one group perceives an inequality of value relative to another group. This is just human life. This is kids on the playground that, that are all of the same skin color, right? <laughs> this is just cool kids and uncool kids. These are kids that will let, you know, let these people sit at the lunch table and I'm not going to let you sit at the lunch table because I don't like you. Okay. Humans, these are human realities. And some humans 
have this color skin. Some humans have that color skin. It occurs within skin colors itself, okay? <laughs> there are hierarchies and there are tribes. And so, so this, this fancy name of internalized bias and oppression where one group perceives an inequality of value, well, yeah, those who are on the outside, you know, girls that get left out, you know, hey, we're going to the bathroom and we're not gonna, we don't let you come to the bathroom. And I mean, you know, guys who are, you know, in the locker room and talking, and this is, you know, fraternity. This is, this is life. There's nothing magic about that. We Christians understand this, okay? The same thing with microaggression, a term for commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental slights. This is just called gossip, and it's called slander, <laughs> and it's called, you know, people just being mean, Right? And ironically, a Jack Morris isn't really trying to be mean. He's actually trying to say, this guy is a phenomenal player. He says it with an accent. You know, he's going to pay the consequence. People, I've heard black comedians use a white accent. I wasn't offended in the least. In fact, I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> Ricky Smiley, <laughs> uh, you know, talking in a white person's accent, you know, at a football game. And then he, yeah, I find it funny. Comedy works off the foibles of the human condition. And this is making it all go away. So, um, This is just life. And so this is an alternative framework that's trying to define sin in secular terms. And where there is sin, there is atonement. And here, in, in this, I'm, I'm foreshadowing a little of what I'm going to talk about next week. In critical race theory, in critical theory, there's only offenses. There is no atonement. There is no redemption. If you're an oppressor, you, you, it's repentance is not like you then are brought back into the fold. You know, you are cast out. There's a shunning, there's a, a cutting off. And so there's, there's only sin. There is no redemption. And this is why it is a competing worldview. It's, it itself is an oppressive worldview. It does not offer um, a, a, a good solution. So I don't think we need a new model. I think this is the problem. I don't think we need a new model of human behavior and, and, and addressing society's ills. We need to know our model better. As Christian, again, I'm speaking to Greenwich. I'm speaking to the Christian community. We don't need a new model. It's not like Christianity has been, been found. Um, uh, what's the G.K. Chesterton? It's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting it has been found difficult and left untried. Christianity has not been tried and been found wanting. It has been found difficult and it has been left untried. People don't bless their uh, enemy. They don't pray for those who persecute them. Shohei Otani, I wonder if he's a Christian. He's not offended. He's, he's okay, you know. Forgiveness, forbearance, uh, uh, the, the, our scriptures guide us into such realities. The prudent man overlooks an insult. The fool shows his annoyance at once. The, the Proverbs speak in this way. And so as we understand our own faith better, it speaks to all these issues. It speaks to every one of these issues. 
And so we as Christians need to know our scriptures better. We need to, to commit ourselves more fully and we need to live into these. So um, <clears throat> let me close here. We're going to spend an extended time next week trying to unpack kind of at a macro level, kind of doing some, some wrestling with how to respond to Christ, uh, crit critical race theory and injustice. But for now, let's pray. Uh, pray you have a good weekend. Uh, and uh, let us um, let us be about the work of loving our neighbor and loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so, Father, hear our prayer as we make it in the name of Jesus, who has provided the answer. Forgive us where we fail to embrace and fail to live into the fullness of this faith that you have and, and the fullness of the adventure of following Jesus Christ, taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, loving our neighbor, loving our enemies, and working for the reconciliation of the world. And so, Father, hear our prayer now, uh, as Jesus taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the God whose kingdom is forever and his glory is forever and his power is forever, may that God bless you, keep you this day and forevermore.